We're in the middle of the first missionary journey uh, here in our passage in Acts. And uh, go to the next slide, David. We're going to blow that part of the map up. Uh, they started in Antioch of Syria. Now, right now, we're in Antioch of Pisidia. Those are two different places. That's Paris, France. That's Paris, Texas, right? Uh, but Barnabas and Paul and Mark sailed from Seleucia to Cyprus, and they preached the gospel all the way across Cyprus. Then they went to Atalia, this port, and to the big city of Perga. And at that point, something traumatic happened to the team. What happened? Remember, Mark left. Mark left, and he didn't go back to the home church. He went back to Jerusalem where his mother lived. So he, he panicked, and he freaked out, and he dropped out. But Paul and Barnabas go to Antioch, and, and from there we'll continue the story in the next few weeks, Lord willing. But right now we're in the city of Antioch. And um, for some context, hold your place there in uh, 13, verse 44. And let's go back to uh, verse 13, 13. Now Paul and his companions put out the sea from the, the uh, port of Cyprus there, Paphos, and they came to Perga in Pamphylia there in Asia Minor, just way south of Antioch. But John, John Mark, the author of the Gospel of Mark later, left them and returned to Jerusalem. But going on from Perga, they, Paul and Barnabas, arrived at Pisidian, not Syrian Antioch, but Pisidian Antioch. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue where the Jews would meet on Saturday and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets in the synagogue service, the synagogue official sent to them saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. Now jump forward to verse 36. Paul does an impromptu message based on the Old Testament to prove that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Christ. He's the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the world. Verse 36, in the, toward the end of that message, Paul says here in the synagogue, for David, King David, 1000 BC, man after God's own heart, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. Sleep, that's a euphemism for the death of a believer. And was, but his body was laid among his fathers and underwent decay. Right? He wasn't resurrected. He, his body decayed. His spirit went to, uh, uh, paradise. But he whom God raised, that is the Messiah, David's descendant, Jesus Christ, his body didn't decay. He was resurrected from the dead. Therefore, it's Jesus, not David or Moses we should focus on. Jesus is the Savior. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through him, the one who was resurrected, the only resurrected one, the Lord Jesus Christ, the first fruits of those who will be raised, through Him, Jesus Christ, and only Jesus Christ, forgiveness of sins is offered to you. And through Him, Jesus Christ, everyone who believes, every single one who believes in Christ, is freed from all things that could be used against you in a court of law, from which you could not be freed by being, obeying the rules of the, the law of Moses. Uh, and then he says, therefore, this is critical, take heed, don't become a scoffer, and perish because you refuse to believe this. And he cites an Old Testament passage. So there's our context, okay? We're in the middle of the first missionary journey. We're in Antioch, but we're not in the Antioch that they started at. We're at that Antioch. Paul has preached the gospel in the synagogue. And then look what happened in the aftermath of that. Drop down to verse 42. This is something we 
touched on at the end of last week's message, as Paul and Barnabas were going out of the synagogue after Paul preached Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected in the Jewish synagogue, the people, a lot of just the average lay people, kept begging them that these things might be spoken to them the next Sabbath, the next Saturday major synagogue service. Now, when the meeting of the synagogue had totally broken up, many of the Jews and of the God-fearing proselytes, Gentiles, who were in the service, thought Paul and Barnabas that week, uh, who speaking to them were urging them to continue in their newfound faith in the grace of God. So that's our context. Now, next slide, David. Our passage today follows up that, and despite the clear preaching of the gospel and the initial enthusiasm by some in the synagogue at the end of the service last week, uh, we got problems. We're going to see curiosity is followed by conflict, consequence, and continuation. Let's look at curiosity. Look at verse 44. The next Sabbath. Now, by the way, we had like, what, 40 verses on that synagogue service, and they're wanting them to come back the next service. Uh, that's the end of verse 43. Now, like verse, verse 44 says, the next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of God. In that little space between the end of verse 43 and 44, there's seven days. What did Paul do that all that next week? What do you think, Daniel? Go fishing? Probably, might have, mine went fishing on his day off. Most preachers take Monday as their day off. Uh, I take Tuesday as my day off. Of course, you only work one hour a week. But you know what? Some people say, hey, Ben, why should a pastor have a day off? Why should a pastor have a day off? Satan never takes a day off. And I always say, well, you know what? I've never used him as a role model for my ministry. <laughs> so that's what I would say to that. But, uh, yeah, we got a whole lot of living between the end of 43 and 44. Whatever he did, he's ready to go the next Sabbath. Look at verse 44. That initial positive enthusiasm amongst some who heard him. This curiosity is such that the next Sabbath at the synagogue, the whole city is trying to cram in there to hear what this guy Paul is saying about Jesus Christ. Verse 45, but here's the rub. Look at verse 45. But, so everything's going great so far. But, when the Jews, Luke isn't anti-Semitic. He's not castigating all the Jews. He's talking about the Jewish leaders. The term the Jews normally refers to the leaders of whatever Jewish thing you're talking about here at the synagogue. But when the Jewish leaders of the synagogue saw the crowds, we've never had so many people come to our services before, and rather than being happy about it, they're, well, the text says, they're filled with what? Jealousy. We can't draw a crowd, and Paul's been here for one week, and everybody in town wants to hear this thing. They have a personal problem with Paul. It's not theological. It really, it is a theological problem, ultimately. But it's more of a personal psychological problem that starts the deal. And so they began contradicting. That means they're standing up in the middle of a message, refuting Paul point by point. That, that, Isaiah 53 is not talking about Jesus. It's not talking about the Christ. It's talking about us, you know, in, at a national level. That kind of retort that you hear even to this day. So they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul, and they're blaspheming. Now, basically, to summarize that message from last week, Paul's just saying, look at the Old Testament. It paints a picture that God's going to send a Savior and it exact, that picture, Sarah, meshes, meshes perfectly with the person and work of Jesus Christ. Go back to 1 John in the back of the Bible. Not the Gospel of John, but 1 John, the letter. Basically, what Paul is preaching in the synagogue is the message that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the promised Savior. 
And he's the issue and the issuer of eternal life. That's what he's preaching. That's what he's preaching the first Sabbath. That's what he's preaching here, David. That's why the uh, jealous officials feel like they have to try to refute it. First John chapter 5, verse 1 through 5. Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. And if you're really born of God, if you love the Father through faith, you ought to love other Christians too, even if they don't exactly cut the stake as finely as you do on the mechanism of soteriology like we're going to talk about in a minute, whatever that means. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments to love other believers. And this is the love of God working in us that we keep His commandments and we love doing it. It's not grim resignation. We're doing the right thing because we've been forgiven and given so much in Christ. Whatever is born of God overcomes the world and this is the victory that's overcome the world, our faith. Now Shannon, our faith in what? Go back to verse 1. What verse 1 say? Whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ, right? That's the faith we're talking about. This is the victory that's overcome the world. Us daring to believe Jesus, the Son of God, is the Christ. Who's the one who's overcome the world? But he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Go back to Acts 13. The world wants you to believe anything about Jesus Christ, male, except for what he really is, the God-man Savior, the exclusive issue, and an exclusive issuer of eternal life. And you can believe all kinds of nice things about Jesus or terrible things about Jesus. The world will happy for you to believe anything like that. But you've overcome the world when you trust in Him alone. Look at verse 45. We've got this conflict here. Uh, they're going to stand up in the synagogue, the leaders, and say, hey, you can't listen to this guy Paul because he's saying this penniless Galilean carpenter was the Messiah, and he's not. Uh, we'll tell you what you need to know about that. Uh, but they're motivated not by theology, but as the text says, jealousy. You know, I don't know if this is because I've been a pastor for long, so long or just a, just an older guy, but quite often the reason people give for underachieving, including some of the reasons I give for underachieving, the reason I'll give you isn't necessarily the real reason. It's probably the least embarrassing excuse I can come up with. These guys would not say, Hey, don't listen to Paul and Barnabas. We're jealous of them because they drew a bigger crowd than we can. They're not going to say that, are they, Blanche? They're going to have a good reason, a gooder reason. They're going to have a reason that's not embarrassing, like saying we just kind of uh, resent the fact that they're more interesting than we are, or whatever like that. Okay. Now let's go to the heart of the matter. Of the matter here. Look at verse uh, 46 through 48. We've seen the initial curiosity. A crowd gathers the next week after the first preaching of Paul, the conflict that's covered up with uh, theological, uh, uh, what do you call something when you just put a, a light coating over something that's bigger? I'll think of it tomorrow and I'll, I'll email you, okay? But let's look at the consequence. Look at verse 46 through 48. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly in response to being rudely interrupted and retorted in the middle of a message in the synagogue. Nobody does that. Uh, they continue to speak out boldly and said, hey, here's the bottom line. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you, the Jews in the synagogue here in Antioch first. You got the prophets. You got the scriptures. You should be looking for the Messiah more so than the Gentiles who were starting from scratch. But since you repudiate the word of God in the gospel that Jesus of Nazareth is the crucified risen Savior, since you repudiate that and thereby summarily judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we're going to look totally, exclusively, 
toward the city, not the synagogue, toward the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us in uh, the Old Testament in Isaiah 49, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, the non-Jewish citizens of the area, some of whom had visited the synagogue that week, they began rejoicing and glorifying uh, uh, the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Um, I know James likes the message paraphrase, and I thought the me- message paraphrase, the message, you know, if you're looking for like a, uh, a less literal, but kind of a more big picture description of the biblical passages, sometimes it helps to have a paraphrase, I think. Uh, I-, I like the fact that Daniel's kind of going like, you're, you're recommending a paraphrase? It's a qualified recommendation, okay? If you're going to do close Bible study, you want a good translation, okay? You always have to have a good translation. But if you want to look at big portions of Scripture, if you want to sit down and read the whole Gospel of John or the first half of the book of Acts, 12, 13 chapters, it wouldn't hurt, Dennis, just to get a paraphrase, a a different version than you usually read, because you're going to read the stuff that's more familiar to you and probably zone out and not concentrate as much as you would normally. Get a good paraphrase. And the message does a pretty good job some of the time. And this time, disclaimer for using paraphrase, uh, this time I thought they did a nice job of getting the sense here. The message says, but Paul and Barnabas didn't back down when they were rudely interrupted and retorted right in the middle of their message. Uh, standing their ground, they said, it was required that God's word be spoken first to all of you, the Jews, but seeing that you want no part of it, it's you, it's your fault, your problem, you're rejecting it. Uh, God didn't program you to reject it, you were rejecting it. Um, you made it quite clear you have no taste or inclination for eternal life. The door is open to all the outsiders. Next slide. So notice what we've got here. We've got uh, two sides of a coin here, don't we? Since you thrust aside the gospel and you judge yourselves worthy of eternal life, uh, we're going to do something else. You're rejecting this message. Then we're told that the Gentiles who hear the message were rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and they believed, but it says they had been appointed to eternal life before they believed. So how does that work? Next slide. Yeah, and just to try to, on a graphic, I put the uh, rejection up here in the left corner, and the reception in the bottom right corner to kind of show you the dichotomy there and kind of the spectrum we've got. And, I mean, how does that work? Let's talk about that. Salvation is of the Lord. But when you cut that stake up or you dissect that that thing and try to understand the details of it, you get interesting statements in Scripture like, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Now watch this. Let's start here. This is non-symmetrical here. It doesn't say as many as were appointed rejected and as many as appointed were believed. It says these people rejected and these people believed, but they had been appointed before they believed. So how does that work? Well, let me say two things about that. Number one, um, many great Christians who love the Lord just as much as you and maybe just as much as I do have a different understanding about how this, those two verses fit together. There's at least three different ways Christian thinkers have tried to understand how those things work. This is a little bit like inside baseball, Ben. You know, uh, 
somebody can go to a baseball game and just kind of watch the the uh, overt kind of things happening. I think they understand baseball. But if you uh, you know really understand baseball, there's all kinds of things going on in the manager's mind. They're moving people around, trying to pitch a ball outside, inside, outside, inside, fast, slow, curve it, straight, all that kind of stuff. So when you open up the hood of how salvation works, there's at least three major views about how you fit these kind of statements that are all over the Scripture uh, together. Uh, next slide. Now, because uh, I think this is a good illustration, let me go from talking about salvation, and the fancy term for the study of salvation is called soteriology. Uh, but let's go to Bible prophecy. I think people are more comfortable with the fact we have differences within Christian and, and Christianity about Bible prophecy than sometimes we are when we realize there are differences in the way that Christians understand the details of salvation. But look, I'm a happy uh, premillennial thinker. Look, this is God's plan for the future, in my opinion. You know, here we are living in the church age. Can you see that? We're living in the church age. What year is it? Is it still 2015? This has seemed like a long sermon already. I thought maybe it was 2016 at this point. But yeah, it was 2015. I got a feeling we're living pretty close to that. But uh, a lot of Christians say, well, yeah, the Bible clearly teaches Jesus is going to come back. Those of us who are premillennial say he's going to come back before he sets up a 1,000-year kingdom on the present earth, and then we get to the super good stuff, the eternal state. That's called pre-millennialism. Christ comes back before a literal millennium. Next one, David. There's another view. If you got a pre, which means before, you're going to have a post, which means that's where you mail the, your letters at the post office. Right? Now, post means after. Now, some Christians don't think that Jesus is going to come back and then set up a millennium. They think that the church is going to preach the gospel so dynamically and effectively that God's going to work to kind of Christianize the world and bring in kind of a non-literal golden age of peace and prosperity. And so after, that's post means after, after the millennium, Jesus comes back and then we get to the eternal state. That's two of three major views Christians have about future things. Let's look at the third one. Ah means no. To be amoral means to have no morals. Ah means there's no millennial kingdom at all. Because the Jews were promised a millennium. But what did the Jews do with Jesus? By and large. What did Israel do by and large with Jesus? They rejected him, right? So there are some thinkers who say, because of the Old Testament people of God, rejection of Christ, the promises have been nullified, and we're going to have a church age, second advent, eternal state. Now, I'm going to ask you a question. This is a thought question. Are those three diagrams exactly alike? And the correct answer is no. Let's, okay, you ready? Are those two diagrams exactly alike? No. However, are they, they're different, but are they totally divergent? I would say no. Why? Go ahead, hit, go ahead and hit, hit the next button there, David. All the same words, just jumbled up to different. But look, we all believe in a literal second advent. Let me suggest that the absolute irreducible minimum of Bible prophecy that the Holy Spirit has consistently affirmed to all born-again believers is we're promised a literal second advent, whether it happens before a literal thousand-year millennium or after a non-literal millennium or whether there's going to be no millennium on the earth. We all agree in the second advent. Now, when I first found out 
that not everybody in, in, that God has used greatly in church history has a diagram about the end times exactly like mine. I went into a, like a crisis mode for like six months. I mean, it totally freaked me out. Because this is so obvious to me, right? But uh, it's possible. I could be wrong. But for sure, we're not as different as it might look at first glance. Next slide. Let me suggest, when we're talking about not prophecy, but salvation, we've got the same kind of thing. Uh, did God choose and then God knew who was going to be saved? Or did God knew, know who was going to be saved and He chose him because He knew? Or maybe there's something else going on. You know what? We can debate that. But for sure, the, just like the second advent is what all Christians affirm about Bible prophecy, you know what all born-again people affirm about salvation? Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again. And through faith in Him, however He did it, however you define the atonement, through faith in Him, He gives eternal life to all believers, right? That's what we told them in Mexico. That's our story and we're sticking to it, right, Clay? Yeah. So there are three basic views on this. How you connect those who reject the gospel, did it, and it's their fault, but those who believed had been appointed to eternal life before they believed. The first view is Calvinism. And it keys on the sovereignty of God when it comes to salvation. And basically it says God chose the elect pre-temporally and he works to open their hearts and regenerate them so they can believe in time. That's classic Calvinism. Okay, That's one view. Second view. Yeah. Uh, Second view, I think I had labels there, but they just disappeared on me. Uh, the second view in white is called Armenianism. It's not called Armenianism. Armenia is a geographic point of real estate. The Armenians live in Armenia. Okay, This is Jacob Arminius, who responded to some of the excesses of Dorian Calvinism, and he said, no, God didn't choose the elect and then cause them to believe. God chose in eternity past, those he knew would believe. Okay? And you know what? You can explain all the verses with that premise, and you can explain all the verses with that premise. Okay? Next one. And by the way, that should say Arminianism. I just messed up that PowerPoint slide. I'm sorry. So here's the thing. A lot of times people assume those are the only two options. But in fact, there's a third option. And about the same time Arminius came up with his concept, somebody that you're going to meet in heaven... Okay, by the name of Moses Emerald, said, you know what? You can't do that, Calvinists. You can't do that, Arminians. God doesn't think in sequence. How can you say God chose before He knew? How can you say God knew before He chose? We move through sequence of time when we're coming up with plans. God knows everything all the time. God both knows who's going to believe and chooses those he knows is going to believe and chooses those he wants to believe both at the same time. God's choice is not based on human response, but it is consistent with human response. Now, I told you this was non-symmetrical, right? We kind of had those who rejected here, those who believed had been appointed here. It wasn't apples and apples, it's apples and oranges. Now, the problem with my personal view, which is the blue one, Emeraldianism it's called, that uh, God both knowingly chose and chose knowingly 
is, here's the problem with that. You ready for the problem? It's not symmetrical. And theologians, academic, systematic theologians, want a symmetrical diagram. And they'll say, that can't work. It's, it's like having a room of 100 people and saying, I'm going to divide this group of 100 into two groups. And here's how I'm going to do it. Everybody who's six foot tall or taller, go over there. Everybody who has blue eyes, go over there. That's what it sounds like to logical, academically trained theologians. But you know, if I say everybody who's six foot or taller, go over there. Anybody with blue eyes, go over there. I can make sure I divide that big group into two perfect groups if I make sure the group is made up like that. God made sure that human beings are one or the other, either six foot or taller with not, not blue eyes, or had blue eyes and are six foot or shorter. Okay, It's not one or the other. You can't say God chose before he knew, or he knew before he chose. He doesn't do that. Okay, uh, You can say he does things in eternity past, and we do things in time. But I think they're making kind of an issue there. So here's the point. Whether you follow any of that or not with my flawed PowerPoint slide, here's what I want you to know. There are three different ways Christians dissect the details of how unbelievers reject, but believers have been appointed. Okay? Next slide. Second thing. Watch this. If you're saying, man, you're going way too fast, I can't wrap my brain around this, that's perfect. Nobody can totally wrap their brain around this. Right? There are certain key passages and concepts in Scripture that none of us understand completely, and we probably never will. Let's talk about the Trinity. Is God one, or is God three? Which one? Now I say, is God one, or is God three? Which one? Yeah. You can say, well, seems to me like you got to choose one or the other. you got to be either six foot tall or blue eyes. But in fact, the Scripture says, this is a big truth. You can't totally understand it. But trust me, it's made up of two components that don't look like they totally line up. But I say they do. There's only one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one God. But baptize them in the name, singular, of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's one God who exists in three persons. We call that the Holy Trinity. Okay, We do that, and Arminians do that, and Calvinists are happy with the Trinity. We don't say it's got to be one or the other. Both at the same time, we're not exactly sure how it fits. But it's got to be, it's got to fit, because there's a hundred verses that affirm the Trinity of, of the Holy Trinity. Okay? Next one. Okay, next question. Hmm. And next one. Okay. Uh, just disregard this slide. Uh, yeah. My, my point is, there are, I would say, I would say all the really big theological truths about God in this program are bigger than our ability to totally understand, but they're made of two seemingly contradictory components that are smaller portions of that that don't seem to fit together, but God says they do, and we've got to believe it. One God or three gods? When it comes to the person of Christ, the incarnate Christ, is Jesus the Son of God or is He the Son of Man, Russell? Which one? Is He the Son of God or the Son of Man? You tell me. No, I said, is He the Son of God or Son of Man? I'm a Calvinist. I'm an Arminian. you got to choose. 
Or if you're a Calvinist, you're not choosing. You're just doing what God told you to do. But uh, I'm telling you, when it comes to the Trinity, what they call the hypostatic union, hey, is Jesus Son of God or Son of Man, Joe? He's both, isn't He? One person with two natures. You can't do that. Impossible. Can't reproduce that in the laboratory. Yeah, but God did it, right? When it comes to Scripture, same thing. Uh, if we had more time, we'd go to Matthew 22 where Jesus says, David said this about the Messiah. And then He says later, the Holy Spirit said this. When you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, is that the, the work of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and John? Or is that the work of the Holy Spirit? Which one? No, I didn't say that. Is it the human authors or the divine author? It's both, right? I, I find it interesting that Calvinists and um, Arminians are fine with the Trinity in the hypostatic union and in, in the uh, expression of Scripture, but when it comes to salvation, they're saying you've got to pick one or the other. And I think the Scripture affirms both divine sovereignty and human responsibility, non-symmetrically, such that those who receive salvation through faith in Christ have God to glorify for it. Those who fail to receive salvation have themselves to blame for rejecting it. That's that's what it is. Okay, next slide. So, and, that, and that's also a big realizing. This is non-symmetrical. So God deserves the praise for good, and we deserve the responsibility for evil. Hit that two more times, David. Yeah, remember it says, uh, since you repudiate it and you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we're going, we're out of here. Okay, we're going to the Gentiles. Who does Paul blame for their not receiving salvation? Well, you just weren't elect. Sorry, tough luck. You know, he says, you did it. You rejected it. Okay. But then when Luke describes the Gentiles believing, he says, they didn't just wake up and say, yeah, I think I'll believe that. There's a big plan behind all that and God likes it. This is also important to realize that when it comes to evil, hey, if God created everything, then He's the blamable cause for evil. The Holocaust. Drunk drivers killing people, right? Did God create everything? So therefore, He's the blamable cause for evil. No, He's not. He created everything just like Ford Motor Company creates all the Ford Motor Vehicles. They're the ultimate cause of everything involving Ford Motor Vehicles. But the Ford Motor Company is not the blamable cause for somebody getting drunk or high getting into a Ford truck and running over a family trying to cross the street to do a picnic. You don't... This may happen the way we're going, but at some point, somebody's going to probably sue the Ford Motor Company. But really, who's responsible for that tragedy? The driver. The individual driver, not the Ford uh, Motor Company. Okay? Yeah, next slide. So, when you see passages like that, realize there's at least three ways you can fit those together. And Calvinists do it one way, and you respect that because they've done some great things. God's used Calvinists to do wonderful things for the Christian church for hundreds of years. But it's also true, God's worked through Arminians. And we're going to have to stay humble because I'm going to try to talk you into becoming an Amaraldian. In fact, we're going to have an altar call today only so you can sign the pledge. No, I'm, I'm kidding about that. We're not going to do that. But yeah, it's interesting the way that works out. Okay, curiosity, conflict, consequence, continuation. Look at verse 49. The rest of the story. And the word of the Lord was being spread throughout the whole region as a result of these folks receiving. And they'd been appointed before 
time and creation and the eternal mind of God, but now in time they're living their faith and good things are happening, not just in the city, but all in that county, we'd say. But the Jews, the same Jews that in verse 45 were jealous of Paul, incited people with money and power, devout women who were interested in theological things with money and leading men of the city, and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas such that they were driven out of the district for their own safety, kind of beaten up and kicked out of town. But Paul and Barnabas shook off the dust of their feet in protest and said, we're just going to go down the road. And yet, what's going to happen to the new believers in Antioch? I guess they're, they're hopeless. I mean, Paul and Barnabas are gone. Their pastor's not around anymore. What's going to happen to them? Guess what? God will provide. The God who saves and enables us to do everything he wants us to do. Uh, and the disciples, even though Paul and Barnabas were gone, were continually filled uh, with joy in the Holy Spirit. Next slide there, David. Yeah, so let's conclude this way. Salvation is of the Lord. And that's just as sure as the 1036 coming by every Sunday morning. No, it's actually a lot more sure than that, isn't it? Uh, and I think that uh, when we say that, salvation of the, is of the Lord, Calvinists will say that, Arminians will say that, Amoraldians will say that, and those who say, you know what? I don't care. I don't care. I don't want to be a Calvinist, Arminian. It's like the, the, the country preacher was preaching about the uh, hypostatic union. And that's the theological truth that there's one person in Christ, but two natures, fully God, fully man. And this country preacher was preaching about the hypostatic union, and a guy in the back, an old farmer, raised his hand and said, Pastor, I don't want to hear no sermons about the hypostatic union. I'm against all the unions. I'm against the plumber's union, the electrical union. I'm against all those unions. I don't want to hear nothing about the union. Right. So just realize when you sing or say salvation is of the Lord, you're saying a mouthful and you can open up the hood and do the inside baseball stuff. And I mean, Calvinists have written books that thick, or that thick about how all that works. And Arminians have countered and written books maybe thicker. And then you've got the Emeraldians trying to say, hey, this is kind of like the Trinity, guys. Let's just kind of hold everything the Bible firm's intention and uh, stop assuming we totally understand the way it works. But here's the thing. It doesn't matter whether you're a Calvinist, an Arminian, or an Emeraldian, or you just don't want to think that deeply on Sunday morning. I kind of get that. Guess what? If your view, or if your non-view, if you're just opting out of thinking about it, Daniel, and you're a good thinker, so I know you got a view. Okay? If it makes you arrogant or proud, you got a problem. Even if you've got the correct view. Even when you get to heaven, God says, yeah, I'm a Calvinist. Way to go. You guys were right. Or, you know what? Sorry, guys. I'm an Arminian. You know? If that happens, you still got a problem regardless of what your view is. If you're using it to puff yourself up and to look down your nose like I'm superior to other people because I understand this and the weaker Christians don't because they haven't read as much or prayed as much as I have, that's a problem. Next slide. You realize there's a verse or passage in the Bible that lists six things that God hates. And the number one thing he hates is cell phones. No, that's not that's not true. He doesn't hate cell phones necessarily. There's six things. What's the first thing on the list that God hates? Haughty eyes. And I have seen uh people get theological training, uh and some of them are Calvinists and some of them are Arminians and some of them are Emeraldians, and because they think they figured it out and they've read a lot of books and they can defend it to the end they look down their nose at other Christians 
that hold a different view. That'd be me like a pre-trib, pre-mill prophecy thinker looking down my nose at 80% of the Christian church who are all millennial. I'm just not going to do that. I've got my faults, but assuming I'm better than them, them because my prophecy diagram's perfect and theirs isn't, would defeat the whole point, right? So, you know, our passage today, I think, teaches uh, all of us, regardless of where we stand on that theological debate, Calvinism, Arminianism, Emeraldianism, that those who receive Christ as Savior ultimately have God to thank for their salvation, because salvation is of the Lord. But those who reject salvation have ultimately only themselves to blame. Okay? Let's have a word of prayer. Father, I want to thank you for the incredibly deep truth you introduce and show us in your word. Not necessarily so we can totally understand every jot and tittle of what uh, Peter calls the hard things, things hard to understand, but so we can maybe be more humbled and more appreciative of all you are and all you've done. I want to pray for everyone in this room, whether they've got strong convictions in this area or they've never thought about this issue before. I want to pray that from the depth of their hearts, you've allowed them to see and believe in Jesus as the Christ. Jesus as crucified for their sins, risen literally from the dead, who gives eternal life to all who believe. Calvinists who believe, Arminians who believe, and even Amaraldians who believe. Uh, I thank you that TBF is a church that just right up front says, you don't have to be one of those three to be a precious part of this assembly. You just have to be a believer of like mind that I think in a small way, this church is kind of a visible microcosm of what you're doing in this town, in this state, this country, in this world where we see the different denominations and they disagree on a lot of different things, but they tend to be fine points. So help us to major on the majors. Help us, uh, regardless of our theological bent, to think more deeply and more appreciatively about your working to bring the Savior uh, for us and to bring salvation to us. And then, as we leave today, let us stand shoulder to shoulder, united by our faith in Christ with a desire to live and share his message to the world. And I thank you for each one who's here. Empower us to do that. To your glory, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.